Once upon a time when we were coloured, black footballers took abuse on the pitch and had to live with it. You can ask Paul Canneville about them days, when he was the first Chelsea player of colour, you know them ways, when his own fans would call it a draw if they won by a goal that he had scored. And if it was that bad for him in the early 80s, you can imagine how much harder it was for Clyde Best and Adi Coker when they were on the playlist. For West Ham, a decade earlier, Best and Coker were proper warriors. But they couldn't walk off the pitch if they got abuse like England players nowadays have decided to do. Back then, they worked for the system. The system didn't work for them. You see, once upon a time when we were coloured, the system was making sure we suffered at home, in school and at work. Our only salvation was at church. But we weren't going there because our white friends weren't going there. And it was kind of embarrassing to be all dressed up while they were out there doing nothing. So we skipped Sunday school as often as we could and started hanging around in the neighbourhoods with nothing but hopes. We looked to our English friends to show us the ropes. After all, they were born here, and their parents too. They were the ones from whom we learned what to do, the ways and means to achieve our dreams. They taught us to bunk school, singing, we don't need no education, no dark sarcasm in the classroom. Or as the punk group The Clash pointed out, black man's got a lot of problems but he knows how to throw a brick. White people go to school where they teach you how to be thick. And then they taught us to be bad, nicking sweeties in the sweet shop, being hooligans non-stop. We never knew who us was and we never knew who them was. We were just rebels without a pause because we were living in those lower economic areas, those lower ambition areas where the heroes were the bank robbers and not the police officers. And two twos, before we knew it, our parents could hardly believe it, we were cockneys too. Or at least we behaved as if we were, behaved as if no one noticed our colour. The system didn't see it that way, and bit by bit it made us pay for that audacity of hope. It's no joke. I sometimes wonder, when I feel like going under, whether it's better being black now or whether it was better being black then, back when we didn't know it was because I is black. Back then, even our parents didn't know, didn't know for sure, if it was because I is black. Back when we couldn't imagine it was because we is black. Back when we thought it was poverty rather than hypocrisy. Is it not harder today when we hear say even Labour MP Dawn Butler has to prove that she's not some kind of hustler and that the white guy she's with is her junior, not her boss? when the gatekeepers of the once upon a time when we were coloured culture are waiting at the gates like lazy vultures, 
making sure that no matter how we're honoured, as far as they're concerned, we are, and will always be, coloured. Leo Mohammed knows what I mean. As Leo Chester, he was one of the blackest comedians that there'd ever been. But once upon a time, he was coloured. Now, the man I'm about to introduce you to is uh, best known, I think, as an edutainer, the person who brought the phrase edutainment to the stage here in Britain. We also know him as something of a political activist, but we'll come on to that in a moment or two. Initially, I knew him as Leo Chester. He goes now by the name of Leo Mohammed. Leo, welcome to the show. Yes, sir. Edutainment, I say. Edutainer. What exactly is edutainment there? The, the, the actual phrase wasn't uh, coined by myself. We, we got that from uh, KRS-One. The uh, rapper? Yeah, the great rapper, yes. And um, I really liked it. And when I, when I began to find my feet in the, in the arena of stand-up comedy, I realized that what I was doing wasn't traditional stand-up as such. And um, edutainment really, as a phrase, really encapsulated what I was doing because what we were doing was mixing education, information with entertainment. So, you know, um, for me, that was the, the most appropriate term. And uh, over the years, when I began, I think people eyebrows were raised when they heard edutainment but now uh, almost every other show uh, that you see out there people will want to use this term edutainment uh, when they're trying to put insert that level of consciousness into what they're doing eyebrows were raised as i recall yeah. when you raised up your hair to about this high you had the yeah. highest little flat top even higher than that of the guy in kid and players i recall that's right in those days that's uh, right. you looked certainly uh, odd on yes. the stage. Yes. Yeah, it was a, it was a. You, you're going back a long way, but uh, that was the beginning. That was that's how I began. I I had a a very unusual hairstyle, and uh, I determined to have that very high, uh, high top as they called it in those days. And um, you know, for a time on the stage, I, I really was experimenting, trying to find out uh, who I was, trying to find my voice, uh, and and determine exactly what it was. I was I was supposed to be doing up there and um, you know eventually we settled down you saw the hair disappear and uh, lots of people were upset because they said well you know that that's what I was known for back in the day I used to have a head of hair system you know what I'm saying and uh, I, you, some of you remember I was completely bald because I kept it I was shaving it for eight years consistently just because I like that ball that barley look look kind of dangerous you know so I was, I, was, I was walking like that, and then one day I decided just to experiment. I said, let me see, see you know, grow my hair. And I started to grow my hair, and, and this stuff is really lightweight here now. 
Like it, I get light. I was vexed. So, so now I'm using all the formulas, man. I'm trying to grow it back. Cause, see, I don't mind going bald voluntarily, but not against my will. <laughs> I'm very much uh, of the opinion that uh, we should evolve, we should change, we should grow, and um, we've reached this stage now. And uh, you know, I feel very comfortable now um, making that marriage between the information that I have in my heart and on my mind and the, you know, the, the, the concept of entertainment, mixing the two things. Uh, because I think uh, as a people, um, we want to hear something. We, we're looking for a word uh, that would inspire us and uh, hopefully uh, have sufficient light, energy and power within it um, to make a change, make a difference in our lives. You looked funny on stage with the high top, but you were very serious. And even though we laughed at you, with you, mm -hmm. and uh, at some of the things you were saying, and some of the descriptions you were giving, we were left thinking, ooh, that was a little bit heavy sometimes. I'm very concerned about where we are. I don't like the way they're cussing off Robert Mugabe, and I'm here black people that do it too. Yes, yes, yes. Can you imagine Tony Blair across from a Mugabe? I mean, you know, like, you know, like black man, see, black man, yo, black man, black man said, hey, hey, you see me, me a bad man, you know, me a bad man. That's how black man, when a black man body, he said, you tell everybody, like me, I tell you. Hey, you see me, me a bad man, you know. That's not a bad man. A bad man. Take over 150,000 troops to another man country. Teeth in Ireland, in broad daylight. Kill over 100,000 people. And then have election in Britain and you go vote for it. That's a bad one. Did people feel comfortable with the kind of humour you were giving them? Because you were giving them some brain food, weren't you, really? Some laughs, but also a lick at the end of it to make them go home and think about what you'd said. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the way in which I would explain what I do is that uh, I'm coming in the tradition of the doctor. When you go to the doctor and you, you, you're going to get the medicine, oftentimes, you know, medicine is very bitter. And so a wise doctor, a wise physician, um, sugarcoats the medicine, put a little wrapping of sugar around it uh, so that when we take it in, it, it tastes sweet. But when it gets into the system, it can do the work that the bitter pill does. And um, that's how we did it. I've always, as a young person growing up, um, been searching for a particular type of truth. And the type of truth I was searching for is the knowledge of myself really to find out where do I stand, where do I figure, where do I feature in the picture. And uh, because, you know, growing up in, in, in the Western Hemisphere, uh, as a black person coming out of the island of Jamaica, coming here uh, back in 1967, and having the experiences which I had on the streets and in school and so on and so forth, um, it, it lends itself to a great deal of confusion for young blacks. And um, I was one of those confused souls. And so I was searching. And as I began to discover myself, it wasn't sufficient for me to keep that self-discovery to myself. I really wanted to share it. And when I became a member of the Nation of Islam and was really exposed to that very 
very awesome, powerful, dynamic teaching, which comes from the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan, I really wanted to share it with other people, in particular black people, in order to influence us towards making a change and getting up and doing something for ourselves. Except those who believe. Believe what? Do you as a black person, do you believe in yourself? Do you believe in God? Because you've got black people now in the year 2006 walking around saying, watch out, I'm into this God business. I'm not into this God business no more. But let black people get into trouble. Let us get into trouble. Oh, we remember him then, don't we? Let us get on that airplane. We're going to the Caribbean. And let, let the airplane hit some turbulence. We don't call on the pilot. We start talking to God. If we're Muslim, we start playing with our worry beads. If we're Christian, we reach for that crucifix. But suddenly, we remember God. And again, it is hypocrisy to turn to God only in times of trouble. So I, I deliberately couched what I was doing on the stage in that way. Uh, with a so view. you were already a member of the Nation of Islam when you were on stage in the early 90s, yeah, in those making early, people laugh. Yes, sir, in those early days. If you remember, there was a point when I was Leo X Chester because we, we go through a process of uh, study and graduation, so to speak, uh, in the nation, and if you remember, uh, the brother started off as Malcolm Little, then he became Malcolm X, and then ultimately Malcolm Shabazz. Uh, the Honourable Minister Louis Farrakhan was Eugene Walcott, Eugene X, and then Minister Louis Farrakhan, and so on and so forth. The Honourable Elijah Muhammad was Elijah Poole, and then he became Elijah Kareem, and then ultimately Elijah Muhammad. So it's a, it's a process uh, of stages of growth and development that we go through in order to go back to where we began, where we were coming from, Kunta Kenti ultimately was forced into calling himself Toby. And so we have to return back to our father's house. Because the way I was feeling when I first came, I was vexed. I felt like, you know, I, I felt like how I used to feel when I watched Roots. See, when I would watch Roots, the next day, I'm praying. As I leave my house, I don't want to see no white people. <laughs> I'm living in Britain, Britain will live, but I don't want to support my Somebody is going to die. Uh, um, for us, it's a journey. Um, that we've been on, a sojourn that we've been on coming into the West when we came in via slavery. And ultimately, we believe we must go back to our, our origin, our true nature. And uh, I really uh, was very excited when I, when I learned some of the things that I was learning and I really wanted to share it. And so when I got on that stage, um, I had a, a mission uh, of really imparting something. But of course, because I know that um, we were not ready for maybe uh, the straight word, we couched it in humor. In Jamaica, where I come from, uh, the saying is, we play a fool for catch wise. So that was the, that was the principle behind it. So you arrived here in 1967. Yes, sir. Um, as a young boy. And y your parents um, say that you were always on the defensive when they're about to tell you off. So you had a bit of a mouth of you, <laughs> even in those days. Yeah, I mean, um, my mother said that uh, when I would do something wrong and they were about, I, I was about to be chastised, I would throw both hands up in the, in the air and say, let me explain. So what that tells me is that I always had something to say. As a young person, I always had something in me uh, where I wanted to express myself. And uh, 
uh, ultimately it, it found its expression yeah. in this edutainment going on the stage and standing before people and really, um, you know, in a sense, bearing my soul because uh, what I try to do on the stage is I really try to be honest, brother. Um, over the years, I've been interviewed and asked about comedy and my influences and what got me into it. And uh, of course, I grew up in the era, like so many of us, of Eddie Murphy and all the rest of the the, 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 the comedians. Well, going back, yeah. Charlie Williams. Yeah, uh, of course, I, I remember, remember Charlie Williams. Kenny yeah. Lynch. I remember, I remember <laughs> let's go, very let's well. Let's go way back. I remember very well. And, and he the, used to the, take the mickey. The Love Thy Neighbor and all of these things. But when I was questioned, I could never point to any of those as what influenced me. The only one that I could point to would be Richard Pryor. Because one thing about Richard Pryor, despite the profanity, he really was a very, very honest man on the stage. And that's what I liked. And I wanted to be a person who would go on stage and tell the truth. That's, what, that, that's really what I wanted to do. You say you that you were confused when you first came over here, uh, late 60s, I remember the time myself, uh, young black uh, teenagers today may not realise there was a time when every step you took was like uh, a progressive t step for the black community in this yes. country, yes. every step forward at least. In what, what exactly do you mean that you were confused though, in which ways, do you, do you because, remember much of those days? Because, you know... Um, when I was growing up in Jamaica, for instance, my father was the third secretary to the prime minister. My uncle became the longest serving MP in Jamaican history. His name was Arthur Jones. He was the mayor of Kingston, Jamaica. He died in around 1995. And so you came from a solid background. Right. That's the point. I came from a background where everybody I saw in power, my uncle was... A, a, a high official in the police force in Jamaica. Everybody I saw was black, in power, doing something for themselves. And 
I was never taught or led to believe that I was inferior in any way. As far as I was concerned, I could aspire to be the prime minister or the president or the chief of police or whatever the case may be. And when I was in Jamaica, I, um, the schooling was very harsh. The discipline was very strict. But nevertheless, I felt like um, it was for me. And I felt like learning was a natural part of my life. However, when I came to this country and within a few weeks uh, recognized that there was racism, something I'd never known in, in my life, and then began to hear stories and, and uh, have experiences of racism, direct racism, in school, on the streets, and so on and so forth. It really um, threw me uh, into a tailspin. And over a, a period of time, I found myself now on the streets uh, because of um, family breakdowns between my mother and father in this country because of the pressures that they were under, I found myself then getting into all kinds of uh, difficulties. Uh, I was carrying a knife, things of this nature, uh, because How I felt... How old were you at this point? Yeah, um, you're talking about, um, you know, 11 years old, you know, um, carrying a knife, um, getting into uh, scrapes now, crime, things of that nature on the streets. So for me, it was a real culture shock um, when I came here. And because of the lack of parental guidance, I don't blame my parents. I understand now with some hindsight that they were going through some they very were under pressure. My parents too, yeah. very much so. Mm -hmm. But you say that you recognised or you experienced racism within a few weeks of being here. Oh, yeah. Oh, do, you, yeah. do you remember what that was? Exactly? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the first time I went to the school, for instance, when they, they got us into a school, these things had been organised prior to our arriving here. We were living in Leeds when we, when we first came. And uh, I remember one of my first experiences in the, in the classroom. Uh, the teacher asked a question and I raised my hand to answer. And I remember thinking it was so strange that all the children that would raise their hands, the teacher would go to them, but they would continuously ignore myself and they would never come to me. Then each time I would try to speak in the class, all the children would be giggling and laughing, whatever, because I still had a, a somewhat strong accent from Jamaica. But to me, there was nothing wrong with my accent. It was the way I, I, I spoke. And so... I remember going into the playground and uh, hearing something like um, uh, nigger matter or nigger mind, go black home, you'll be all white in the morning. And I didn't understand it. I think it goes like this, wogger matter, uh, you browned off, okay. you browned off, yeah. go black home and you'll be all white in the morning. It's yeah. one that they used to use on yeah. us. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. it might so have been I, slightly different in Leeds from London. Yeah, so I didn't, <laughs> I didn't quite um, understand what was um, being said, but then... Uh, a young brother who had been born here, I believe, he was here prior to my coming to the country. He explained. And I remember I was very angry. I remember immediately I kind of like felt, you know, because like, as far as they were concerned, I was somehow inferior, but I didn't feel that. And so um, within a short time, I still had that very hot uh, Jamaican blood coursing through my veins. And uh, within a short time, I think within a month or so of being in school here, I had a fight with a, a white boy uh, over the issue of being called names and, and whatever. And uh, the teachers appeared to me again to really take his side and to see me as the as the antagonist. And, um, you know, there was a lot of problems over that. My parents were very upset. And um, again, I began to hear stories about my father being chased by teddy boys. Uh, and he wasn't telling me. My father didn't tell me this. He was talking to 
other people, other grown-ups, but I overheard these types of things. He was talking about these people having coins uh, in between their knuckles and handkerchiefs wrapped over and how he literally got away uh, by the skin of his teeth one night having to run away from them. So it became... And, and, he, and I was so naive. Let me give you an example of what I'm saying. When I heard teddy boys, I literally pictured in my mind teddy bears. I pictured giant bears or something like that. I was really very green to the types of things that I was hearing. But nevertheless, um, it became apparent and uh, that there was this problem between the races in this country. And um, as time went on, and I then found myself in... Uh, uh, um, what, what, were, what were called um, I'm trying to um, for some reason or another the word has gone out of my head but it, uh, children's homes I, I found myself in children's homes when my parents uh, finally the marriage broke up and uh, my father was unable to uh, take care of us um, there was myself and my younger brother and uh, when I went into um, this particular home in Wandsworth we'd come down to London um, and uh, I found that the, the care workers, the teachers within this environment were very racist and would make it uh, their duty almost to bully and um, antagonize and mock uh, myself and other black boys. But uh, I can't necessarily speak for them, but I know the experiences that I was having. And uh, I remember on occasion even becoming so angry and, and so frustrated that I attacked uh, one of the teachers and was trying to fight him and he was a very big man he had a large stomach and I remember he was just holding me by my head at arm's length kind of thing while I swung away trying to do 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 something and um, and you know from there things escalated I eventually ended up in a, what they call a, a, an approved school in those days bad boys home uh, because I was convicted uh, of breaking and entering because I went uh, with a white boy uh, to do um, collect old newspapers for a paper mache, paper mache, um, to make a guy for a guy for Guy Fawkes. And in the process, uh, when he, he, we got to this house and he knocked on the door, there was no answer. Uh, the white boy that I was with, I think he was around 14 and I was around 11 at the time. He asked me for my jacket. I gave him my jacket. I was very naive and uh, he used my jacket as a buffer for his fist to smash the window of the house and then he, he got inside, he was very professional, he knew what he was doing. He'd obviously done it before and uh, he opened the door uh, from the inside, I went in with him and then he told me to, you know, grab what grab what you can kind of thing and I remember stuffing a, a clock into my pocket and some other bits and pieces, I, you know. He was, he had something like a crowbar getting into the, the gas meter of the house and uh, taking all the coins out and whatever. In those days, yeah, people used gas, gas meters, meters yeah. to put money in. That's right. And um, and um, we was in the house, and then I remember... It could we, even have been my house, because we got broken into in, the in, gas meter. What, were, you, were you in Ursfield? <laughs> no, 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 no. This was in Tottenham. Yeah, this is in South West London. <laughs> and you're innocent there. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> My lord. <laughs> yes, sir. So um, I remember when we were in the house, uh, the doorbell rang, and uh, I remember looking at through the passageway at this frosted glass door and uh, seeing the clear distinct outline of a police officer's uniform and i was terrified and uh, this this uh, young boy he ran out the back i followed him and he i mean he disappeared over these garden fences like um 
like a kangaroo, you know, but me, I was there struggling, all these things in my pocket. And to cut a long story short, um, he got away, I was caught. And uh, I remember being placed in the back of a Morris Minor, if you remember those police cars in those days. That was a panda car. A panda in those car, days, that's yeah. right. It was a, a, like a pale blue light and blue, white. Light blue and white. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember the police officer um, um, really being very rough. And uh, I was uh, very afraid. And um, they got me to the police station. And I remember the sergeant um, taking a huge black book. I don't know what the book was, what, what they used it for but he smashed it over the top of my head. And I remember I literally saw stars and it felt as if he had done damage to my neck. And uh, they were really abusive and they were really, you know, calling me uh, nigger and all this kind of stuff and uh, asking me where my friend was. And I really genuinely didn't know where this other person had gone. And uh, eventually um, I was returned to the children's home, but with a court case uh, pending. And then when I went to court, uh, I was then sentenced to to be incarcerated in this uh, approved school for three years, and so that I was then sent to um, um, Stanford House, which was a holding place uh, in Shepherd's Bush, I believe it was lo the location of that place, uh, which was like a semi prison for for juveniles, and in there there was a whole lot of rough uh, people, and. Um, it was like a baptism of fire uh, for myself. I remember having one of my front teeth punched out while I was there by somebody who was around 17 or something like that. And then um, after a few months at that place, they then transferred me to a place called Mile Oak School for Boys, which was the approved school, which was located in Portslade in Brighton. And um, the first day there, I was taken by the boys onto a back play, a backfield area, a play area, onto something called an A-frame. They took me to the top of this very high thing, threw me off into stinging nettles, all my face, and then they took me, threw me into a swimming pool that they had there. And I remember I had a little, I had a five-pound note, which I'd saved up over the weeks uh, in Stamford House because you had to work in there, and then they would give you. Uh, tuck money or something like that, and I'd managed to accumulate five pounds, and that was soaked from the swimming pool, it was ruined, it broke in pieces and whatever. Um, but that was my introduction. Now, when I went to that place, I was um, 11, 12 years old, and I left there when I was around uh, 14. So I was in there for around two years or so. But when I went there, uh, there was myself and maybe another three blacks and um, maybe one mixed race, you know, but black, but you know, what, what they would call half-caste, that, that term, that language that is used. And there was maybe 1,500 other bad boys. Some of them had actually killed their parents. It was that type of place where they couldn't send them to prison, so they would stay there until they matured sufficiently, then they would um, send them to, on to prison. And when I arrived there, I was bullied every single day. It, I, it really was a nightmare. But I, by the time I left there, I, was, I became what's known as the cock of the school. So, so it was the proper story of the seven stone weakling having the sand kicked in his face. But by the time I left there, I had all of those bullies walking behind me. So I, I had, there had been a transformation in my whole persona, in my whole understanding of life. Um, How did that transformation happen? I had to fight or die. 
it was literally on that kind of level. It was it was that rough and survival. Yeah, and uh, I had to grow up very quickly, um, and the naivety had to depart rapid at a rapid um, pace uh, because um, otherwise uh, there really would have been uh, no way to um, uh, survive um, that place because the racism that existed was not just with the boys. This was in the days in the early 70s, in 72, of skinheads and Ben Sherman shirts and uh, State Press and uh, Dr. Martin. Harrington and, jackets, crombies, exactly. monkey boots. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, um, you know, it was a very rough time. And uh, I, I went in there, I remember seeing young boys smoking in the toilets in there. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, I would never smoke by the time I left there. I was smoking like a trooper. Uh, I'd learnt, you know, profanity and all of those things. I remember um, one um, time, uh, very rarely did I get to go home. Some of the boys would get to go home at weekends. Not every weekend, but I think it was like once a month or something like that. Very rarely did I have that opportunity because my parents, my family life was so fragmented at the time. But I do remember on one occasion having the opportunity to go home for the weekend. And I remember I made the mistake of using the word poxy. I'd learnt, this is one of the words I'd learnt there, and I used the word poxy, so like, oh, that poxy thing, and my father lost his mind, you know, he was so angry, and I didn't even know what the word really meant, but, um, um, you know, this was the type of um, environment that I, I then... It was an education of sorts, not the one that you'd uh, wish on your own children, I'm sure, yes. but a, an education in crime? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, an education in um, street life and in crime and, you know, those types of things. And mostly, I would say, in survival. So when you, That was the education. When you came out at the age of 14, mm -hmm. what happened then? I came out and I went to William Blake School for Boys in Battersea. And I remember the first day walking through the playground with my father, um, going to see the headmaster of the school. I remember we had, um, when looking for a school, we had come across Battersea County School in, in Battersea. And I remember when I saw that school, I said, yeah, that's the school I want to go to. It looked like a proper school and it looked like it, people had uniforms and everything. And, you know, there still was inside of me, despite that, um, that baptism of fire within the children's homes and the approved school, there still was in me a desire to learn. I really wanted to. Uh, I felt uh, like I was a very conscientious type of person. The, what had been instilled in me up until the age of 10 in Jamaica had really taken hold. And so there was still some self-discipline there. There still was a desire to learn. And I really wanted to go to this school, which appeared to me to be a good school. And I did say to my father that, you know, you know, Daddy, could I go to this school? And he said, well, we're, we're going to go and have a look at this other school first. And uh, we went to William Blake. And I remember walking through the playground with my father and I remember some of the boys in the yard, they were cursing some serious bad words. And I remember seeing the frown on my father's face and I, mean, I guess I was frowning as well. Uh, but nevertheless, he still took me in there and then we sat, talked to the headmaster, but I just had a bad feeling about that place. I just didn't think that this was the place for me. And uh, I again tried to appeal to my father, but if anyone knows anything about 
uh, West Indian parents and in, in the era I'm talking about, it, my father wasn't really a man that I ever had a, a conversation with. And so he basically dismissed my pleas and said, this is the school you're going to. And so I found myself in William Blake School. But believe me, uh, you know, that school, it was like a giant playground. It really wasn't a place of learning. I remember my first day in the first class um, sitting down and I remember the teacher um, standing at the blackboard and I remember the, the, the blackboard rubber, the, the thing that they would use to clean the blackboard, crashing into the blackboard next to his face, just missing his head. And, uh, you know, it, it was pathetic, you know, the response of the teacher, now, now, boys, you know, it was really, and uh, it was evident to me that this was just going to be a nightmare. And uh, it was, they were fighting every day, all manner of things. And then eventually I hooked up with a crew of brothers that uh, we would mostly spend our time across the road in Battersea Park in the adventure playground, which was um, known as the jungle. That's where I spent most of my time. And then on, uh, on one occasion, I, I, I went to class, I went to school, and uh, we had a judo lesson. And uh, I did the judo, computer, completed the judo lesson. And I, in those days, I had a little Timex watch, which uh, was very precious to me. Well, they were the uh, popular watches yeah. of the day. <laughs> it, 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 had a, it had a luminous, uh, had luminous dials. It was very yeah. small, black. Uh, but it but it was very precious to me simple in today's terms yes but yeah but it was you know to me that was my pride and joy my my timex watch and uh, after the class the next lesson was woodwork and i uh, i got to the woodwork class um door and the teacher was standing there basically ticking people off as they went in and then it, it suddenly dawned on me that i'd left my watch in the judo room now it wasn't the type of school where you could leave the watch and hope to find it again if you let another class go in there. So I said to the teacher, I'm, I'm sorry, sir, but I need to go and get my watch uh, from the judo class. He said, get in the class. I said, sir, I've got to get my watch. He said, get in the class. So I said, I've got to get my watch. So I began to try to move away to go back to get my watch, whereupon he grabbed me. I, I pulled myself out of his grip and um, he kind of stumbled. He didn't really fall over, but he stumbled. But I went and got my watch anyway. Got back to the woodwork class and he said to me, um, you need to go and see the headmaster, uh, Mr. Dibble. That was the name of the headmaster. So I went um, to the headmaster's office and uh, he basically said that he was going to cane me. And uh, I was very angry, uh, I must admit. In those, by this time now, I really developed a, a certain level of um, attitude. Res resentment, attitude. And so I told him in no uncertain terms that uh, he would only cane me if he understood that I would take the cane and use it on him. Um, afterwards. It was that kind of exchange, whereupon he said, reaction? you are expelled. 